0: What's good, internet? It is Austin Walker. It is October. F- se- what? What this is, is the this? Fifth? Is the first time it's you've done fifth. this?
1: You've never, you've never done a date intro.
0: I know that's why I'm bumbling it. But here's the thing: is the last time we did an intro, the weather was really bad, and so I was just like focused on that. Today, the weather is like that exact perfect New York fall weather. So all I can think about is like, oh, it's it's October. It's exactly the it's the the platonic ideal of an October day in New York right now. Uh, so so I'm focused. I want to say I want to say October. You know.
1: It's beautiful out here too, so I, you know, maybe we're going to uh, jinx this and then 15 minutes from now, it's going to become a torrential downpour, but uh, right now we both have nice weather. I'm going to try and enjoy it.
0: It is, it is uh, extra beautiful in here today because I have a special guest and he's covering his face right now and, and wiping <laughs> sweat from his brow. <laughs> Harvey Smith is joining us, surprise
2: guest. Hey guys, very happy to be here and very happy it's October, my favorite month.
0: Is it, is, it, is, it, is it because of Halloween? Is it because of the weather?
2: You know, growing up in Texas, uh, my family spent half their time on the Gulf Coast because that's where one part was from and half the time in central Texas, which both are hot and one's really hot and muggy. And so somehow, you know, after these uh, summer days where sometimes it's over 100 for 30 days straight or whatever, it's oppressive. And so... Somehow when that first turn of autumn happens and yeah. a cold front comes in, it just feels like magic to me. And then it signals the the coming of Halloween and the, ho- the holidays and all right. that. Lots of
0: masks, lots of... Yeah. Uh, which, like, I guess, I- I'm curious. How is Halloween in the part of the country where you were from? Is it, is it like a big deal? Do people, like, go all out? Is there lots of decoration?
2: Yeah, spook houses and uh, setting your house up like a haunted house or whatever... Uh, having big parties, everybody being in costume. Like, you know, it's more maybe more a function of age than anything. Like, uh, in December, I turned 50, which is astounding to me. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, growing up in the 70s, like, I was surrounded by all these uh, aunts who were younger, who were like, you know, would go all out for all the cousins and stuff and dress as witches and cats and et cetera and put black plastic trash bags up in the garage to make a little labyrinth or whatever. we'd bob for apples, all that stuff. We'd go trick-or-treating. You know, the, the rumors of, like, poison pixie sticks and razor blades and apples and all that was, like, that was exactly when people were talking about all right. that. But uh, it was still so much fun, you know.
0: That's, I, I wonder if, I'm sure that there are people listening at home thinking, like, of course this dude loves Halloween. Look at the <laughs> games he's made. Look at the mm. games that he's been part of. Like, these are, these are spooky things sometimes. These are lots of masks. Very yeah. intricate masks sometimes. And and uh, lots of spook houses in the sense that, like, let me build something that that has a specific effect in mind. That I thought we were just shooting the breeze, but you're going boom. deep. Uh, Looks <laughs> <Well, that's> good. <laughs> yeah, Austin uh,
2: Walker's equivalent of shooting the breeze. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> no, like, I love it. Who
0: else am I going to ask that question to?
2: <laughs> I have spent a lot of time thinking about horror and <laughs> coping with things and mastery of scary feelings that you have when you're oh. a child and how we... We make it into something that we can like get our heads around by by making it a creature from the Black Lagoon or a werewolf or whatever
0: instead um, of yeah, something exactly. else right like that's the that's the uncanny terror.
2: Some of my favorite type of horror is more like that. Uh, like one of my favorite horror movies is *Ginger Snaps*, the film about um, uh, teenage girls that become werewolves, mm-hmm. you know, and what they're all the stuff in their world they're coping with, you know, and so horror as an allegory for that sort of thing, instead of, like, fetishistic horror that's just made to creep you out or mm-hmm. disturb you or whatever, I'm much more like the former than the latter.
0: Do you think that even, and maybe Patrick knows this just as well as you, as Patrick is the biggest horror buff I know, do you think even the stuff that doesn't necessarily frame itself as being about something actually reflects some other anxiety? Like, I, obviously, something like Babadook or It Follows, it's very easy to be like, oh, yeah, okay, here's the thing. But... Even the B-movie, even the slasher flicks, even the the sort of, like, schlocky horror that is just trying to make you have a jump scare, is there something lingering there, too, just harder to dig out? Or maybe even something that the, that the creators weren't aware of, in some cases?
2: Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, that's one of my favorite forms of criticism is the sort of after-the-fact analysis of what was really going on there, whether the creator was conscious of it or not. I mean, you could look at the James Whale films uh, Frankenstein films uh-huh. and talk about his uh, the fact that he was gay in Hollywood at, at a time when it wasn't uh, like uh, widely accepted you know and y- you could look at zombie films we just finished like a decade-long obsession with zombie films and you could talk about fear of crowds uh-huh. and uh, fear of uh, shortages and mobs and uh, maybe race relations in there somewhere but also...
0: That's certainly the classic zombie thing, yeah. right? Like fear
2: of death, fear yeah. of disease. Uh, it's like that stuff is way more fascinating to me than just the, uh, well, I guess all of it. You're, you're right. It's, it's, it, there's probably, it's fascinating for somebody. Each one is probably right. interesting to
0: somebody. But, Way to see if Patrick, who is our horror expert, had, that, <laughs> had a way in here. Because I know, Patrick, yeah, one I... of the things with you is like you do just say, no, like I love being scared. I love goofy horror movies.
1: Well, I, you know the the argument I've always made, um, as I've sort of like done a, you know, when I was growing up, uh, I think you know when you're examining what you're afraid of and what you respond to, um, it's it's often is that surface level. It's you know the slasher flick. It's it's the it's the scary monster, uh, you know, Freddy or Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees. But uh, as I got older, and I continued to enjoy horror films. I, you know, once you reach, you know, your late twenties, you got to have a sit down with yourself. Like, what is, what is (laughs) it about this that you're responding to? And it's fine to enjoy it just on the sort of, uh, fetishistic surface level. You know, I think there, there is a, there is room for just, uh, the jump scare. But for me specifically, I I enjoy watching films that, uh, sort of force me, I find horror to be a place to confront my own fears of death to get like super serious (laughs) for a second, right? Like, um uh, like, but, but it is that place where, you know, like if you are, let's say, claustrophobic, which uh, uh, it's not a phobia of mine, but it is definitely one of my deepest fears. So films that play upon that, Um, I find to be deeply uncomfortable, but also a space to sort of explore the things that freak you out in a uh, a, uh, safe space. And so those those often tend to be my favorite films that sort of prey upon uh, sort of a specific feeling um, that may not uh, be universal. But for those particular people, uh, it becomes something very powerful.
2: I completely agree. And that's uh, to bring it back to games. I mean, I think a large part of the games that I love, uh, they have. Empty atmospheric spaces that you're free to explore at your own pace mm-hmm. and with your own movement. Like, I don't like creepy atmospheric spaces where the camera's super constrained or whatever. Uh, just th- picking a couple of examples, like. Uh, from Stalker to Fallout, you know, or yeah. Far Cry 2, or Bioshock, or Thief, or System Shock. I mean, you You're know.
0: in the best possible place. Like, it's either this or the Idle Thumb Studios, but either this or that is the, is the place for the list of games you just listed. Oh,
2: maybe Rock, Paper, Shotgun, Maybe too, Rock, but... Paper, Shotgun, yes, <laughs> but, yes. They, uh, they love case... themselves from Stalker. <laughs> in any case, like, there's a, just a combination of things. There are scary, menacing people out or things out there, and you can't reason with them. It's not like you can always stop and just, they explain themselves. They have a viewpoint that is so alien to you or so hostile to you that that there's no reasoning with them. You have to either avoid them or confront them, master them, you know. Um, The atmosphere itself is beautiful at moments, but it's also unnerving and sparsely populated. And it's, you know, you can get on the ruins of a building and look down below and, and feel powerful, or you can be like creeping through an alley and, you know, so Rafael Colantonio is a co-creative director and founder of Arcane Studios. And he and I talk a lot about where these sort of drives come from and why we're so fascinated with them still to this day. And uh, have we exercised those demons or now we just like playing with the flavors that right. we like? Or, you know, right. is it still a need? Because like,
0: is there a point like to to kind of weave back in what Patrick was saying? There's... We can talk about confronting some of these things in a space that is safe and we can talk about using them in in a way that it's like exploratory. But I do wonder sometimes if in the process of pouring ourselves into making them good and fun to play and and coherent, we end up losing the the original drive that pushed us there and enshrining the result separate from intention separate from so like to get specific in some way it's like um is there a is there <laughs> let's like do the biggest worst example which is like the blood scrawled on the wall that says something like i promised the first person who did that had a lot of thought behind why they were doing it but at this point anytime i see blood graffiti or anytime that i i hear a uh an audio log that's like <sighs> Trying to do exposition, but not necessarily in a way that that um, helps present the the world, the fiction of the world, or even something like the jump scare, which like originally comes from a deep understanding of audiences and the, the position of an audience member watching a film and feeling safe and not feeling <laughs> embodied, like feeling separate from their body, and like, the jump scare brings you right back down into the body. Like that stuff starts at a place that's really informed and really specific in particular. And then goes to like, oh, yeah, of course we have jump scares. Oh, yeah, of course we have blood graffiti.
2: Yeah, those things become tropes or they just become the tool set, you know, in a a game creation.
0: But I don't think... How do you check yourself? I
2: don't think genres are bad and I don't think uh, uh, recognizable, familiar tools to the audience are are bad. uh, As long as some other part of the work is Mm -hmm. elevated or you you reach people, you know, yeah. I would not be the guy who's gatekeeping that, you know, like never put an audio log of in a course. game ever again or never put any graffiti on the wall because every now and then someone exceeds like my expectations about it. You know, like Left 4 Dead is one of my favorite games mm-hmm. and the safe, what do they call them at uh, the end of level? It's like safe rooms. Yeah, the safe houses. Safe houses. houses, yeah. safe houses. Yeah. Uh, it's just such a brilliant convention where the media that you're working from and the game play like dovetail together, you know, and it's... Right. Uh, and it's like this little moment of pull-based storytelling, uh, and it, f- it was so heartfelt. The first time I, you know, went into a safe room and I started reading the messages from from different people. But yeah, so, for people know.
0: who who haven't played that game in a while, who maybe missed it. At the end of each level, you know you kind of battle your way through a cityscape or a rural landscape, and, and wind up in a safe house. And then there are just messages scrawled on the walls. And often it can be there can be little B plots that are working their way through those messages from safe house to safe house, even from level to level, even through the the style of writing. You start recognizing that these are characters. And yeah, Austin, awesome. really
2: are you saying that you might have listeners who have never played Left for Dead? Oh, sure. Like oh listen, my god, I, I get I hope... out and play Left 4 Dead. It's so <laughs> no, brilliant. Listen,
0: <laughs> I I. Hope I hope we have listeners who've never played... I hope we have listeners who haven't played a game in a decade, right? Mm. But are interested mm. in... There's a writer here, Larry Fitzmaurice, who is not at Advice Gaming, but is at Vice.com. He's a culture writer. And I like sending, him th- sending things for him to edit because he used to play games... Like all of the time, hasn't in about a decade, but still reads blogs, still reads critics, still has his head in the world of of games because he thinks they're a fantastic and interesting way to tell stories and and offer exploration. so I, I hope we have people who are like, oh, I th- is Left for Dead that game where you shoot a bunch of zombies, and then we get to tell them, like, actually, <laughs> yeah. the use of of text messages on the walls, the use of um, kind of the barks, the character barks back and forth that are, like, automatic when you start walking through a place. What the, the dude who's, like, a biker who just hates everything is like, yeah. I hate trains, is the best. And, like, that stuff is a big part of, I think, why that game was successful. If it was just the zombie shooting sim, it wouldn't be... As as strong. Yeah,
2: it's it's the, when it works, you know, it's like narrative and game mechanics working together. Because I think if it was just the narrative, it would probably also fail. But uh, because, you know, it, it frustrates me a little bit when people start talking about games and what they're capable and what they're possible, you know, what's possible for them to do. And they end up just talking about the visuals and the narrative. Um, sure. You know, sometimes. And Left 4 Dead is this beautiful symphony of things, you know, like uh, there are mechanics in it that I don't, think get enough attention like if you're running from zombies and one of them hits you it slows you a tiny bit and so the more zombies that are hitting you the more it slows you and it simulates that being dragged down yeah. by the mob uh which is classic and and how do you do that in first person they figured it out and and then they added the controller mechanic where you like automatically do a 180 to face back the way you were coming which uh-huh. gets around the mouse look problem and also like suddenly you're face the face to face with the group that's uh, pulling you down uh, and then they, of course, did all the co-op mechanics that were, like, just so overt, but once you get used to them as sort of the the codes or the way you interact with this game is, is you know, like you're, uh, you know, the first time I was stuck at a ledge. Like, I got too close to a ledge and I fell. And you know what it looks like from your perspective. The person is outlined. They're crying out mm-hmm. automatically. The character's like, hey, somebody give me a hand. Help. Um You know, the first time it happens to you and you just feel helpless, like, come on, dude, I can mantle up or I can pull myself up on a ledge in any other game. Why am I trapped here? But it's like, I guess the team realized, like, if we're going to make a co-op game, we have to force some co-op, you know, and it's, uh, it gives you all these dynamic drama moments where you're like, I could fight the zombies on the roof here, or I could run back over and pull this guy up off the ledge. I need to do that or else the team's screwed. And once one person goes down, it's a positive feedback loop. It gets worse and worse for us. So I'm going to go rescue this guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, just a brilliant. No, that's game. really
0: great. I, you know, that reminds me actually, and the way you speak about mechanics in general, one of the things that struck me this year at E3 was, first of all, E3 this year, like pretty much broke down the the, the on the on stage presentations anyway into kind of three categories, I think, which was the kind of Sony style, which was like orchestral swells, no one on stage. Here's the gameplay; it speaks for itself. Here's a trailer. This is all we're going to say about it at the end. Or catch us after for an interview. Then there was the kind of the other style, which was at a bunch of different presentations, which were where it was some, some people on stage who spoke briefly, then a gameplay trailer that spoke, again, tried to speak for itself, and then cut quick out, you know? Um, but at Bethesda, you know, at, at their stage show, you went up for 20 minutes and talked through a playthrough of Dishonored 2 and got into the nitty-gritty, talked about systems, talked about... The way system interacted, was that like, uh, was that meant to be this alternative choice, or was that just the obvious way for you to do it? Did you just like, oh yeah, of course, this is what we're going to do? Um,
2: you're talking about the Bethesda E3, At the showcase. E3 showcase, yeah, yeah, and uh, which we've done two years in a row and has been a great experience for me and Raphael and Arcane both times. I mean, 2015, I mean, nobody really knew we were doing Dishonored two, and so unannounced, Raph and I came out, and uh, I guess. People figured it out when they, you know, saw that the two of us were together, <laughs> but we were able to say we're doing Dishonored two, and Emily Caldwin is our lead protagonist, mm-hmm. and that was a great moment. And then last year, of course, we anchored the show, showing the gameplay for the first time. That was also great. But you know, the fact is, I think we're just nerds. We're way. We're like those, you know, you know, the two, uh, two or three people that start a craft beer place on the edge of town or whatever. They're total hipsters and they're into what they're doing Mm -hmm. and they, they make all these different brews and they can explain to you the chemistry behind it and all that. Like we love games, like a lot of people do. We love games like that, you know? And so it's very hard for us to talk about that stuff without just nerding out. Now that said, that went on for a while and (laughs) I needed water halfway through it. My voice was breaking. Um, and somebody ran up and gave me a bottle of water, which was great. But I got feedback later. I mean, surprisingly little feedback, by the way. So I still have no idea how people perceive that. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it. Yeah. But I heard from some people who were like, you know, it was too wordy, too nerdy. I heard other people were like, oh God, I could listen to that all day, you know? So it's like the
0: internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I'm definitely in the latter camp, uh, but especially because that was a show that didn't give designers and developers that much time to talk about their stuff but like it's a it's a press show it's it's a show for it's a consumer facing show so maybe i shouldn't be too surprised by that yeah that's no.
2: always a trade off isn't it like how polished and slick are these things versus how much do they get back to the heart of what really is about games which is the people who play games have by definition some sort of esoteric knowledge that's pretty deep about the experiences they have uh, so is it, is it the equivalent of like filmmakers talking to film aficionados or oh, yeah. is it all marketing and, and press and all? And it's, you know, games are struggling back and forth with that, of course, and there's a need for both. And But yeah, I th- I, that's what I like about the showcase is that it's a bit of both.
1: Uh, Harvey, I'm curious, you know, you've had the, I guess, is this the first sequel that you've worked on since Invisible War probably?
2: Yeah, for me, this is an interesting moment in my 23 years in games. That's a good point. Uh, Because it's the first time since then that I have back-to-back worked on two games, right? Like, I've come in and worked on somebody else's sequel or whatever, but, like, this is the first time that I've had the opportunity to, like, work on a game for, you know, three-plus years, have it be very well-received, and then immediately roll into the sequel. And I know everything seems obvious from the outside or in retrospect, (laughs) of course, always, oh, they should have just done this or that, you know, and then nobody understands the constraints uh, around what on that day, what, what, what the constraints were. But I have to say it's tricky. It's, it's an interesting balance. And for Dishonored 2, I finally feel like we have that figured out. Um, You know, we, our goal was to bring back the core things everybody loved, but of course, try to deepen them or make them a little better, bigger and I can talk at length about how I think we've done that, add a few things because there were a few things that like ambitiously we we wanted to add to the package and then take the four or five things that mm, we got feedback that could have been better and try to like, you know, fix those. And we read through tons of feedback from players. And so that was, those three components are, are, that's the way that we approach sequeling Dishonored.
0: Is that one of those things where, you know, I guess the thing I hear from developers a lot is man, we got really good at making this game by the end. Like, we were bad at this when we first started. We didn't, we knew what we wanted. We knew what we wanted to evoke. But we didn't know how to get there. And if you've spent, a lot of times they go from making that game to going to make something completely different. Was it a, an easy pivot from finishing Dishonored 2 to like, all right, let's just keep this train going? Was there ever a moment where you felt fatigued by Dishonored?
2: Not fatigued at all. We love the Dishonored universe. Um, and we love, actually, this is one of the strongest fan community development cycles I've had for almost eight years have been interacting with Dishonored fans. And I always explain to people that Dishonored is not one thing. It's a bunch of overlapping circles. We have people who love stealth games, people who love immersive sims, people who like first-person shooters, people who love, uh, the Victorian setting, people who love the art, um, people who kind of like the touches of horror at the edges of it. Uh, you know, people who have latched onto a particular protagonist or some element of the story. Um... To people who like supernatural magic, uh, people who like assassination games, you know, so it's uh, people who like non-lethal and not being, you don't, it's a game right. about assassins where you don't have to kill anyone, literally. Um, so it's a bunch of overlapping circles. Um, I don't know if we ever feel that we're good at it, right? It's a struggle all the way through and it's, you really have to go through the process on a game this big to see this thing that people allude to that's very true that at the end, just in the final weeks of the project it suddenly gets much better synergistically by a lot of little tying off and tuning and acknowledging that this is never going to change you've got to do the best you can around it and suddenly the whole thing like elevates in a, in a weird way um, but yeah I mean we you know I uh, I love Dishonored so uh, psyched to, to be doing the second one and we hope everybody loves it as much as we love it because it's, uh, it's bigger and better dishonored, plus some new things, plus fixing some things that, um, that we thought needed fixing.
0: You know, you mentioned having all of those different types of fans.
3: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
0: When you come back and pitch dishonor Two, how do you do that in a way where you don't feel like you're letting one group there down. like like So you open that, that presentation at E3 by saying, in Dishonored, you play as a supernatural assassin in the steampunk city. The game blends combat, stealth, and mobility, giving you many different pathways and approaches. Which is like, that's like two sentences, but in my heart of hearts as someone who writes a lot, I bet that the writer like just just broke themselves over those sentences until it was as tight and compact and as meaningful and as like, yep, this is it. This is the core of the game. Two sentences. We have to say it in two sentences. But like, it's when funny you hear that... It's funny
2: by the way, the writer was me and Raphael Colantonio. Like, we do sometimes work with a, a speech writer who mm-hmm. helps us get our nerdy ideas packaged down. But like, at the end of the day, we take back... We're very hard to work with and we take back control and and, and we make sure that what we're saying is from our hearts, you right. know, like literally... Uh, like well, it's not, like not you... literally, but you know what I mean. It's it's like I, I mean that seriously, earnestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you're right in that in that way that like you take a class on somebody uh, tight with language. You know, I guess uh, Alice Walker is coming to mind because I love the p- color purple, and I just mm-hmm. I got halfway through Beloved a couple of times, and I'm, I'm that's the thing I'm trying to read now. And, but it's true of Shakespeare too, true of Nabokov, where like. You read a sentence on surface and you kind of follow it, but then you go back and unpack it and it means so many layers of things. And uh, yes, that that opening was deliberate because it was like, look, this is not just some marketing presentation. This is like we need to communicate to the people that are really listening for this. This kind of dog whistle, I guess, is the the right term, right? Because we want to signal to people that like this is what you've been waiting for. Um, We're not leaving the
0: combat behind. We're not leaving the stealth behind. We're not going... Is that a tough thing to do on the design side too? Or is that like, I know when I do anything, I find myself with favorites with, with babies, right? Like, ah, This paragraph is the best or this this part of – we're launching a site here, right? And I can find myself on some days getting deeper into the nitty-gritty on, say, short-form video production than I can long-form video production. And it's – in in on paper, like, I need to be treating those with equal care because both are very important parts of the strategy of launching the new site. But like I like being in front of a of a monitor with a with a video editor, and I like digging into that stuff. And if I don't check myself, that's a, a real risk. Is there something in Dishonor that is your like, your draw? Like it's it's the relic calling to you? Yeah, it's funny that
2: you say that. Um, we have a uh, how do you put it? An organic strategy for that. Uh, it's it's too touchy feely to call like a a set of principles or whatever, but it's like, what we try to do is have a fairly flat organization for most of the project, but with somebody like a creative director who can like step in and uh, make decisions. And so nobody's stalemated, but our strategy there is to have people empowered in roles where they're doing their own thing, something they really love that they've gravitated to where they become the champion for that thing, whether it's audio design or whether it's uh, the PS4 as a platform or whether it's the stealth or the, the melee sword combat or the bone charm crafting or whatever, there's an advocate, I guarantee you, or two on every one of those teams. And that's my way of saying what you hear a lot, but it's really true, which is this is not one guy who starts out with a perfect vision and a bunch of drones execute that vision. It's on both levels, that's not true, right? On First of all, the vision changes constantly. It's a process. Vision is a process where, you know, you say some stuff and somebody challenges it. So you shift a little. You have to pivot a little. Well, okay, that's a little weaker, but he really responded to that part. And then you say it again and she's like, oh, wow, she lit up when I talked about this part. So I'm going to, you know, and you just keep doing that for three years. And by the end, you look brilliant because you have this vision, <laughs> right? Um, but and the s- vision is collaborative from the jump. From the jump. And uh, if you're open... And then the other thing is the team members contribute so much. I've talked at length about, like, Dinga Bakaba is our lead designer. And uh, I started thinking about this project on my own because the team was working on the DLC for Dishonored 1, and I kind of had one eye on that. Uh, Raph started thinking about the, the new game that he wanted to work on, uh, but had one eye on the DLC as well. Um, and so for a while, Dishonored Two was just me thinking about it, and I had this leap about using Emily. Like, it wasn't an obvious thing, but we had to. I was like, "Oh, we had to. Move, we'd have to move forward in our timeline, fifteen years, and then it would work." Uh, and then I started pitching ideas, and but the first person who really came in with me on Dishonored Two and worked closely was Dinga Bakaba, and he contributed so much, and he's very much on top of the game design team, uh, and. We talk a lot about the powers and the mechanics behind them, and the combat and the stealth, uh, the bone charm crafting, uh, the difference between Emily and Corvo, the way they feel. Uh, And then, of course, we have Christophe Carrier, who's our level design director, one of the founders of Arcane, the best level designer I've ever known, uh, just full of principles and stuff that have been true in games like Thief or System Shock or Deus Ex, Bioshock, uh, but also the games he's worked on, Arx Fatalis, Dark Messiah, Dishonored One, um dishonored 2 and then we have Sebastian Mitton our art director we just have all these super strong guys and they bring stuff um and on this project we have Sashka Duval who's my narrative designer and she's been a total pleasure to work with and she's brought a lot um she came in from the outside as a as a big fan of dishonored 1 but with her ideas about how narrative could be changed in dishonored 2 so basically long-winded way of saying um You know, I work with all of these strong people who advocate, they champion their own little area, and uh, that's part of the secret, I think. Harvey,
1: you mentioned that one of the things, uh, you know, when you're kind of paying attention to... Uh, what people are saying, you know, whether it's the critics or, or fans in, in terms of building uh, a sequel is that uh, folks have a tendency to say, oh, you know, it's um, this is the very obvious thing they should have done. You know, they're of course they're going to do this. Why didn't they do this? Is there something specifically, because um, you mentioned that often people don't understand the constraints of production and the constraints of development and budget and things like that that probably go into what allow those decisions to be made, whether they're compromised uh, or not. Like, is there something in particular that stood out um, that, people were pointing to that you either addressed
2: in the sequel or that's just kind of the way it was for, for a specific reason? Yeah, I mean, I guess I could I could name a bunch of examples like on, you know, production, uh, budget, time, technology. Um, uh, but, you know, just to, to pick one, uh, once in a while, I hear from people like, oh, I'd I love Dishonored, even I hear, you know, from the people that really like it, but I really would like to be able to carry whatever I want in either hand and switch them out and do this in the left hand or that in the right hand and have two pistols, one in each hand or two spells, one in each hand or whatever. And that's a, that's a game design. You could make that game. That'd be cool. Uh, we opted not to do that for a very specific reason. And we, early on we did actually test other models, uh, Raphael and I with our team in, in Austin, we did very early prototypes, um, on like not having the sword in the right hand, for instance. And what we found was the way we wanted to tune the game otherwise in terms of how fast the guards react, the fact that some guy might leap across the room and swing at you, the tension we wanted to create through those mechanics, um, putting you exactly in the right moment. You happen to be balancing on a railing above some guy and you have a split second to assassinate him and drag his body up onto the roof. No matter what else, it really helps to have... A very quick, like, 50 millisecond button that you can hit that blocks or assassinates. And so we put the sword in the right hand, and that's what goes in the right hand, and that's why. And it's cool to be able to put whatever you want in the left hand, like your crossbow or your pistol or the blink spell or devouring swarm or domino now or whatever. But, like, we we adhere to that thing mm-hmm. where, yes, dual wielding is cool. Yes, that other model could be made to ma- to work in a different game with different timings and different tension and different goals. But in our case, to be able to block and throw a guy off balance with perfect timing to parry that blow, or to be able to move up behind your target and, like, feel that very vicious, like, I'm taking your life now, you know, and dragging you back into the shadows. Like, you need the sword in the hand all the time, you know.
0: It, it Maybe the my question is, like, the opposite of that, which yeah. is, That's a really good explanation for why a thing is the way it needs to be or the Mm -hmm. way it is. It is the way it is. Um, Is there anything where someone has issued criticism to you and your gut reaction is like, no, of course we have an answer. Of course, it's not like that for this reason. And then a week later, you're up at night and and it's still in your head and you're like, what?
2: Oh, my God. A thousand things. Yeah. I mean, like every time you hear criticism, you have that knee jerk reaction of like you know, how dare you criticize me? No, 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 that's wrong. (laughs) But then given some thought, you're like, you know, they're kind of right. You know, there, of course, there are things like that, you know? Uh, And like I said, Dishonored 2 is improvements on the core elements. It's a few new elements. And then it's correct course correcting on four or five things. And those four or five things probably represent what you're talking about, you know.
0: What's like one of those four or five things that comes to mind?
2: Well, for instance, we're big fans of our art direction and our style as led by Sebastian Mitton and uh, in the first project, Victor Antonov. Our, uh, Sebastian was art director of Dishonored 1 and 2. Victor was visual design director of Dishonored 1. And uh, they, they work very closely together on the first game. And now it's it's been Sebastian solo in the second game. Well, I mean, with his giant, cool, talented <laughs> art team, not one guy, but um, they, uh, and on both projects, we have an assistant art director named Jean Luc Monet. Um, so we have some incredible art talent and, in Lyon, but uh, we're fond of our art direction and our style. It's a non photorealistic, it, you know, it sometimes resembles a painting uh, with like but oddly realistic lighting at times you know so it's it's a combination of those things and we heard on the first project some graphical complaints and i immediately was just like what are you talking about i love this <laughs> i don't want to i don't want our game to look like a, a photo realistic game this is what we wanted to do but then when you dig further into it even if the players are not articulating it exactly the way i would you realize that what they're talking about is maybe the rendering technology or whatever and uh, most people care about the composite. They compare about the exp- they care about the experience at the end. They're not most people don't get nitty gritty, which is why to some players, when they're complaining about one little thing that is the most important thing in the universe to them, they feel like we're ignoring it. But it's just like that little thing matters to you, and it doesn't matter to ninety nine percent of players. They are, they care about the experience. But but anyway, so for this project, we rewrote the technology. Uh, underlying the game. We started with Id tech, and we rewrote, like, our, our engineering team led by Ugg Tardif wrote, like, 95% of it again and it's the Void engine and it's uh, it's what we showed off at E3 and it's what people are now playing in the hands-on events that we're holding across the, the world. Uh, and so that's an example of, like, initially... Feeling defensive, but then acknowledging that there was a very specific point in there somewhere. So we've preserved the art style, the the signature art direction, but we've buttressed the, the, the rendering technology.
0: So speaking of, of feeling defensive, um, a thing I've seen from some people, and I, this is not unique to Dishonored, I don't think, is like at the announcement of Emily, obviously lots of people were really excited that you could play as Emily Caldwell, like really great character in the first game caldwell. i love time jumps what did i say you said caldwell i'm i'm terrible <laughs> i'm sorry uh, i'm the worst um i also saw people who were like ugh like here they go again bringing their bringing their their sjw shit in the in the video <laughs> games and like despite the fact that obviously you can continue to play as corvo Atano. that one i got right yeah. All right. That was a response that you'd see, and obviously you mostly see that on on YouTube. You mostly see that on on Facebook comments on sites that have Facebook comments uh, allowed. But like there, there is uh, that murmur there that is like even the notion that you would offer that feels to them like you're you're uh, you know bending to special interests, pandering exactly. Mm.
2: I guess I don't hear that too much because the the voices I hear praising the fact that Emily seems to be presented as a cool character rather than as a sex object or whatever. The fact that she's an interesting character on her own, cool. a dethroned empress on the run, uh, who was the little girl in the first game that you really cared about because your playstyle was affecting her, disturbing her or, or giving her hope or whatever, her drawings. And we, we've heard so much positive feedback about Emily that it drowns out anything else. And then we also do hear people, it has surprised me how much people love Corvo. Uh, and I mean that, like, uh, we, we heard in the first game, uh, he's a bit weird because he doesn't talk. He's, he's silent and therefore he maybe comes across cold. And so for the new game, we gave them both voices. So Emily is voiced by Erica Luttrell. Uh, Corvo is voiced by Steven Russell, who played Garrett in the original Thief. And he's just like the perfect age and, and world weariness to play Corvo at at in his mid-50s. And people have really responded. And there are people that, to my surprise, like I'm like, hey, look, shiny new thing, cool Emily, uh, new mechanics, uh, new character, character little girl from the first game. Don't you like that? You know, and a lot of people are like, yeah, that's what we want. But I've been surprised at the number of people that are like, Corvo's my guy. I got to see how 15 years have changed him and what he sounds like <laughs> with the voice and I want to eat people with rats and uh you know I want to stop time and assassinate five people in the room before they know I'm there. And so there's a nostalgia factor that I've alluded to. But anyway, so to get back to your original question though, like man, the the positivity we've received for Emily and uh and also the for for doing the ambitious thing of supporting both characters because let me tell you it has not been easy. Uh it outweighs anybody's personal you know, conspiracy theory about why we did this. Uh, All I can tell you is that I was alone in a room and I was like trying to get myself, trying to get myself there, if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's exciting to think about working on Dishonored 2 after the first one's successful. But you, as a creative guy, you know what I'm talking about. You really have to find the thing that lights you up. It's not just... Wow, my life is so cool, I get to work on this super cool stealth assassination video. But you have to find the thing. And you find it over and over, right? Like, for me, uh, it was, what if Emily was grown up? What would she be like? She would have been this privileged kid from a posh background, but she had this terrible tragedy where she watched her mother die in front of her. And how did she recover from that, and who did she become? And how would it change her to lose everything again? You know, and that stayed with me. That was I, that was like a lightning moment for me. Um, and then finding the thing happens in other ways too. You know, like uh, Dinga and I, when one of the artists on the team, Johan, pitched Domino, we we, we try to reject everything basically because it <laughs> means more work, right? We're like, oh yeah, that doesn't fit the filters or too much work or that's already been done by so-and-so game recently. But it was the kind of thing where we heard the pitch and we both went, oh. Huh. And then later, the next day, we came back in and Dingo was like, you know, I've been thinking about this idea <laughs> that Johan <laughs> pitched. And we began to shape it. We talk about the upgrades and how it would work and the UI for it and other leads in other areas contributed heavily to it. And then we named it and it, and then we did the v, VFX for it. And now it's one of our favorite things in the game. And, it, and, you know, it got pitched by the lead technical artist, Johan, Um but, you know, you find over and over, whether it's bone charm crafting or it's Emily as a character or it's the, the mission where you can travel in time is one of my favorite moments in the game too because you lose your supernatural powers. Mm. But you got to find that thing. And so I can tell you that almost everything we do comes from a pretty pure place. Like if it was cynical, like, oh yeah, I guess this will sell. This will sell some copies. Uh, <laughs> it It wouldn't survive because it's under constant attack on our team. Like if it's not... If it's not cool enough to survive those attacks, it, it goes away, you know?
0: Is that the same with, with Karnaka, the the new setting, which has, like, a very, like, colonial North Africa, Caribbean, Mediterranean vibe? Was that also a sort of a thing that was like, we can't just do Dunwall again. We have to find something else?
2: Well, yes. First of all, uh, we've worked really hard to make it not a colony, by the way. The the four nations are all sovereign states with their own independent rulers, collaborating together as an empire so because there were a lot of fictional tropes that would be cool to explore in a game i think but that's not where we wanted to go um especially given that our protagonist was the empress Um, yes you didn't want
0: the empress coming to the colonies to save (laughs) them that's not really yeah
2: it's like this is a story of grand moff tarkin (laughs) you know like you know uh, obviously there's some problems there and it um Uh, we wanted to handle things differently, and uh, so you know, each nation state—it's its own sovereign power. Um, now that said, Emily does come to the conclusion that some things have happened on her watch that uh, should not have happened. You know, so anyway, that that I just have to throw that in there. But
0: I appreciate. It. Oh, well, you know, that's one of those things where I think when you see that initial pitch, there was. Oh, it's an exotic, distant tropical locale it's right. pulling from that so, oh it's that sort of steampunk now we right. did we did like dark gritty victorian now we're doing tropical windswept beaches and yeah. and silver mining and yeah, yeah. and spices and, well, and erotic dances
2: we also tried to avoid tropical it's more mediterranean it's greece and spain and mm-hmm. italy and where that came from was you, to answer your question directly i definitely wanted to start in Dunwall and do some missions in Dunwall and then go to a different place. And from Emily's perspective, it is a new place, right? It's a, it's a new part of the empire. It's the Southern edge of the world from Corvo's perspective. He's literally from there. He's always been an outsider or a foreigner in Dunwall and he's going home after all these years. So I definitely wanted to do that. Um, And Sebastian Maton led a lot of the moving it to Sirkonos instead, because I was initially thinking of Morley uh, I find Morley interesting because there's, you know, in Tivia there's a par- uh, there's a there's a council or a triumvirate, in Dunwall there's a parliament, in uh, Sirkonos there's always a du- duke or duchess, but we always say that in Morley there is always a king and a queen, and sometimes their agendas are <laughs> at odds with each other, and so I find that politically really interesting. If you had to do missions for one or both of them or right. alternate, Dishonored in-
0: Three, you heard it here first. This
2: is- <laughs> But Sebastian was really had a strong vision for this place at the southern edge of the world um, that uh, resembled uh, uh, parts of Italy, parts of Greece. Uh, he had ideas about the waves of settlers that had come in from different parts of the the world and the the wind uh, power because of the the peak being mm-hmm. split. Uh, and so we just rolled with that. Again, we 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 have very strong leads and we. Everybody has their say, and, and when the, the better idea wins out, uh, generally.
0: Well, I, I want to keep talking to you about good ideas. I want to keep talking to you about windswept vistas and about all of the different aisles of, of the, the game unfortunately we are out of time in the bunker today Uh, we have to we have to hand it off to someone else who is doing some vo work in here we are still in the bunker for people who who have been following along we just have much better mics today which is great so uh thanks so much for coming on harvey uh thanks to mitch who is engineering this right now uh thanks to tim who is our our new podcast producer thanks patrick for calling in and thanks to bowen who uh, lets us use the wonderful track miss you off of his ep Pale Machine. I remember the name of the EP without having to look it up. That's good. Uh, catch us again on Monday. Harvey, thanks so much.
2: Yeah, thank you guys. Dishonored 2 comes out 11-11-16. Uh, We're super excited. We hope everybody loves it as much as we do.
0: Great. Alright. We'll see you on Monday. Peace.